Good morning. Thank you all for being here with us. Uh, good morning as well to those joining us online and down in our F3 service. Great of you uh, to be with us. So we're off to a, a new year here. Uh, I learned recently that uh, the month of January, that word January, we get uh, from ancient Rome. Uh, the word Janus, J-A-N-U-S, uh, is, is from Roman mythology, and it's a word used to symbolize uh, both a beginning and an ending. Uh, it very much means a, a transition uh, is happening. And so as we continue uh, to reflect on last year, uh, like what we were able to do, uh, especially over the last several weeks here at Fellowship with John 3.16 and uh, the Christmas story, and as we look ahead uh, to what 2023 will hold, it is very much a time to both uh, reflect and prepare that was certainly true today in history. Uh, January 8th, this exact date in 1790, as George Washington uh, delivered the first ever State of the Union uh, address. The State of the Union has become a, an integral part of uh, United States government in that it, it includes a presidential speech within a joint session uh, of Congress. So, so this is a, a circling of wagons for our elected officials uh, to talk through, put their heads together, and figure out uh, where we've been for them independence uh, and the need for freedom-based order, and where we're headed uh, for them, the, the future United States itself. So President Washington gives this speech in, in New York, uh, which was the U.S. provisional capital at the time, and he realized the work uh, that would need uh, to, to be done uh, to protect America's growth and America's future. So Washington shares encouragements, uh, he shares well wishes, but there was also a time to address the issues at hand. So everything from the, the everyday needs of citizens at the time, all the way up to Washington himself saying, to be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means for preserving peace. That's what he said in the first ever State of the Union. It was big league stuff. If you take your Bibles and turn with me now to Acts chapter 6, uh, what we're going to see this morning is a bit of a state of the church address. So Acts chapter 6, go ahead and turn there for me. Uh, it's been a bit since we've, we've read through Acts 6 here at Fellowship, and so I just wanted to briefly recap as you turn there uh, that Luke is writing his second letter detailing the growth and the spread of the early church. Acts uh, chapters 1 through 4 especially uh, is home to a lot of spiritual power, okay? A lot of capabilities and abilities being brought on by the Spirit. Quite frankly, Acts chapters 1 through 4 is a very fun read, very exciting. We can all get on board. Acts chapter 5, though, uh, gets a bit complicated. Uh, Mark and Tim unpacked Acts 5 several weeks ago. It's a chapter home to, to persecution, uh, the presence of, of sin and selfishness, uh, and even priests at the time, who were unimpressed with the message of the gospel. Basically, things get dicey in the life of their local church. Let's see how that continues and what comes from it as we read together in Acts chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 7, says this, if you want to follow along with me. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. 
So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That statement found approval, verse 5, with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Sometimes it's very easy uh, to ask, how did the church get uh, to where it is today? Uh, I know I've heard that often. Uh, it can be asked often as a form of a, a complaint. How did it, how did it all get to, to be like this? And why is it so often uh, disorienting and jolting for an unbeliever or for an outside perspective to kind of understand what is going on. And I think one of the reasons is because we all know that you gather a group of people together long enough, problems arise. You see, there's a, a remnant of, and unfortunately oftentimes a reliance on, us, ourselves, specifically our old selves, who we were as sinners and who we are or certainly can be in Christ, those things are at odds with each other. And there's more on that later, but for now it's clear God has enlisted the imperfect to rely on his perfect spirit. Problems within the local church are an obstacle for those focused on division, but an opportunity for those focused on unity. Let's unpack Acts chapter 6 and, and see how this played out in, in the state of their church at the time. This passage presents us uh, with three things I think are worth noting. Uh, your sermon notes reflect this. First, it presents us with the obstacle. The obstacle. Look at verse 1 with me. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, it says a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The obstacle presents itself. While followers of Jesus were increasing, while the church was growing and, and thriving, and undoubtedly systems were being put in place to celebrate and experience that growth, like the gathering of fellowship, communion, teaching, and prayer. We learned about that in Acts chapter 2. While all that's going on, it says a complaint arose from Hellenistic Jews against Hebraic Jews, our translation calls them the natives, because the Hellenistic widows were not being served food. When it came to the meals, they weren't included. A couple of things to unpack here. First of all, what does, what does Hellenistic mean? Uh, a couple years ago in youth Sunday school, this passage came up and I posed the question uh, to our high schoolers, does anybody know what Hellenistic means? Uh, you can imagine the variety of, of responses I got from ninth and 10th grade boys. 
After they spouted out a bunch of things, uh, one bold high schooler in the back of the room was tired of hearing all the wrong answers, so he rolled his eyes and boldly yelled, you guys, it means they were from Helena, Montana. (laughs) He was not right. So, uh, the word Hellenist uh, or Hellenistic is derived from the Greek word Hellazine, which, which literally just means to identify with the Greeks, basically to be Greek. And so within a, a biblical context, especially for that to come up, where there's often a, a wrestling in the Bible with, with the notion that, that Jesus and his growing body of believers now includes Jews and Greeks alike, you can sort of picture the, the scenario here, and it's not a good one. This is, this is not a good look for the local church. It's an obstacle for fellowship. It's an obstacle for church unity amidst an exciting and growing time. Uh, a similar obstacle once came up in youth ministry, uh, thanks to yours truly. Uh, five years ago, uh, pre-COVID and beardless, I, I joined staff here at Fellowship Bible Church working with Pastor Dennis and fellowship students. And our, our 7th through 12th grade students here at church, we, we gather here uh, on Wednesday nights, 10 months out of the year, uh, for a time of fellowship, faith, and fun. Now, obviously, the, the faith and fellowship are most important But the fun plays a pivotal role in the sense that it's where all the energy gets expended. Certainly that's the prayer of most of our youth volunteers. Please let the energy get expended. So uh, the kids get to use this auditorium uh, that you're sitting in now. And we have a ton of games and stuff. And it's a cool part of the evening because it's actually where those teens get to confirm that those interpersonal relationships matter and are of value to what we're trying to accomplish here. But very early on... Uh, Dennis would, would let me manage elements uh, of youth ministry, and that included uh, organizing small groups to come up and use this space on a Wednesday night. So the, the use of this auditorium on a Wednesday night fell exclusively to me uh, to manage. So you can picture the room just full of teens, organized mass chaos, balls everywhere, And little did youth intern Caleb remember that we had the responsibility and I had the authority to make sure we share the auditorium space with another ministry here at church called Club 56, okay? Uh, Club 56 is where fifth and sixth graders get to experience some of the same things we do uh, before they graduate children's ministry and get thrown to the wolves, right? So uh, at 7.10 p.m. sharp, uh, my man, Neil Walker, rolls up. He was volunteering in, with Club 56 at the time. Neil comes in with 40 preteens uh, who were not expecting to be totally sidelined when they walked in here. Literally, in fact, because we were playing football at the time. Uh, and we just carried on about our business. I went so far as to say, that's pretty cool. Uh, they came to watch us. And we just <laughs> kept on playing. It wasn't until uh, the wide eyes of many of those young children watching these older teens pounce on each other in the name of Jesus that I realized, oh, they actually needed the space. It it, it belonged to them. Uh, I overlooked them. I I goofed. Now, in, in, in this illustration, it wasn't Greek widows, but it was meek kiddos, and I had to deal with it. So... Uh, The youth intern finally catches on, story of my life. I run over to Neil Walker, who happened to be my sociology teacher in high school, and I said, Neil, talk about a sociology experiment, brother. I am so sorry. 
uh, give me some time. Let me rally some of these youth volunteers uh, to help me get us out of Dodge so you can uh, finally have the space. So Jeff and Michael, who, who serve in youth, uh, gentlemen totally full of spirit and wisdom, by the way, helped me uh, fix this issue while I got to talk to Neil. I got to meet some of the, the fifth and sixth graders. Uh, and here's the thing. Neil might not even remember this. It was years ago. He's a super forgiving guy. But for me, it, it, it stuck uh, because I realized this is a, a big church. Uh, I, I belong to something that has so many things going on in, in, a, in a period of growing for me and the church. The reality was there were other groups that belonged in the body of Christ that were in need. Now, for me, that was an, an easy fix. Uh, but can you picture what this scenario was like for them in the book of Acts? This is an entire demographic of people, Greek widows, neglected when it came to being served food. And remember, this isn't a, a, a post-service Sunday luncheon where they realized, oh my goodness, the, the invite didn't go out to everybody we wanted it to. This was, this was life on life ministry, the eating of meals together. It was participation in each other's lives in anticipation for what Jesus is gonna do with the growth and spread of the early church. And it didn't include people from another culture. That's convicting, especially when your goal is to love God and love others. That's the obstacle. That's what they were up against. So the question is, what did the established church do about it? That brings us to the second element of the passage. Look at it again. Uh, Acts 6 presents us then with the opportunity. Look at verses 2 through 4. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said... It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here's your state of the union. There's disunity. A response to the, the complaint that arose uh, is a good one and that their response is supported by an adherence to God's word. But there's a lot that goes into the response of the, the 12 here. First, we see that the, the 12, uh, who we know are the, the teaching apostles, the first thing they do is they establish the congregation of disciples. And that's a number that we know to be continuously growing. And when they do, the next thing they do is clarify their priorities. Look at what they say. It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now you can read that and think, oh boy. Did they just reduce an unmet need down to simply not wanting to become waiters? Did the 12 have, have zero interest in, in serving somebody uh, unlike themselves. Why couldn't the 12 have simply humbled themselves and served as church leaders until the physical need was met? Problems within the local church are an obstacle for those focused on division, but an opportunity for those focused on unity. Now, if the passage read, we don't want to serve tables, 
There'd be a bit of a a heart issue there. But what it says is we don't want to neglect the word of God in order to do so. There's an important difference there. And furthermore, did their action stop there? Was this just the wise counsel saying it is not desirable and then move on? No way. They seized an opportunity. Look at verse 3 and 4. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, defines that further, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will continue to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. What we are noticing here is that meeting the need is an absolute value to the twelve. Meeting the need is an absolute value to church leadership, and with that, there is an intentional avoidance of keeping the burden on the few when the many stand idly by. This means, this is cool, the the 12 in Acts 6 are enacting one of the first biblical examples of Ephesians 4. Look at this with me briefly. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. This unmet need in the book of Acts, the unfed widows, it was an opportunity to allow participation in the body of Christ so that those gifted and busy with the word of God could continue relying on it. The 12 are not saying, pass it off. They're saying, participate with me. It's not that the service was beneath them. It's that based on the growing church, they were closer to being beside themselves if they had to try and do that too. And by the way, isn't this response one that we ought to have and want from our church leadership? Do you really want leadership uh, that, that creates an answer man culture where the top of some leadership pyramid does the work of the ministry. So, so if the complaint reaches high enough, uh, somebody comes and the, the it man does it all. Would that have done the body of Christ justice for the 12 to become the, the it crowd, uh, just traversing the land to and fro, meeting all the physical needs like Mary Poppins? No way, Jose. Are you noticing an unmet need? Do you have the Spirit of God within you? Then let's do this thing and let's do it together. That's what this passage is showing us. So how does it play out? Well, we go from the opportunity uh, to discuss and pray over it to oversight on how to do it effectively. Looking at verses 5 through 7, we see lastly from the passage that This passage presents us with uh, the oversight. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says this. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And here's your seven. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles... And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And here's what happened. The word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And even the priests 
were becoming obedient to the faith. Before we understand uh, who these people were, these seven, uh, isn't it interesting to note that the statement found approval with the whole congregation? There, there wasn't the, the rolling of eyes. Uh, there, there was unity. It made sense. The, the whole congregation approved of exactly the direction they chose to take. I, th- I made the mistake two nights ago of staying up till 12.45 a.m. Uh, watching uh, the House of Representatives try to pick a speaker, uh, took them 15 tries, and there still is not unity. Uh, it was exhausting. Uh, I guess I chose an example of our government from 1790 because it was hard to find one nowadays of the, the division and the disunity that happens is, is just becoming more and more frequent uh, the more we, we watch what's happening. And so for that to be included in this passage, people are not being fed. A specific demographic is being left out. But there was unity within the whole congregation when people put their heads together and says, here is where we should go. That means it made sense to everyone. People were invested in it. And we know they were invested in it also based on who they chose. So the question is, who are these guys and how were they treated by by church leadership? How did this come about? Well, we see that they were treated with prayerful consideration and utmost respect which wouldn't have happened if the 12 were were just interested in in pawning off the task to somebody else. And not only that, but they were described as being full of faith and spirit, meaning you could tell they yielded to the spirit often. It it wasn't that that Stephen was, was a believer or that he had the spirit as a believer in Jesus Christ, which is true, but he was full of the spirit. You could tell from this guy, he yielded to the Spirit often, full of faith, full of the Spirit. Furthermore, this is cool, six out of the seven chosen were Hellenist Jews, the seventh being Nicholas, who was a proselyte, which means a Jewish convert from from Antioch. So who better to help oversee this task than people who have a heart for Jesus and familiarity with their Greek culture. We'll learn more about these guys in in the chapters and weeks to come, particularly Stephen. Uh, But for this morning, the the passage wants to be clear and answer a question for us. Did it work? Did the choosing of these men work? Read verse 7 again with me and you tell me whether or not it worked. Here's what verse 7 says, and I think this verse also highlights uh, the overall goal of the book of Acts. I think it highlights the overall goal of our sermon series here at Fellowship Bible Church. Look at what happened. It's incredible. Acts 6, 7. The word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, a great many of those stubborn priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We went from obstacle to opportunity, and three things happened. The word of God spread, people kept believing, and even the priests were wising up to the truth of this faith. Mm, mm, mm. That is incredible and very encouraging because problems within the local church are an obstacle for those focused on division, but an opportunity for those focused on unity. We can read this and and pretty easily understand there was 
certainly a scenario in which the, maybe the Greek widows never get fed. Was there a church split over this thing? Did the 12 retreat into a holy huddle and, and wait it out, wait to see how it all shakes out? What an obstacle that could have been for division to spread as quickly as the gospel was. But instead, we read this morning the beautiful aftermath from obstacle to opportunity. This passage highlights something so important uh, for the body of Christ. So many passages in the Bible allude to it. Acts is great because it gives us living, breathing examples of other people realizing it too. And that is, people are needed for the work of the ministry. People. Not priests. Not pulpits. People. We read the book of Acts Anytime you see priests being mentioned, chances are they're on the receiving end of ministry, the receiving end of the gospel. People are needed for the work of the ministry. Folks, you do not want to belong to a church of the elite few. A response like like this is such an encouraging one and is no doubt also supported as a model throughout the rest of the New Testament. Acts 6, 1 through 7 is is a biblical response to conflict. It's also a a communal model of equipping saints for the work of the ministry. And our passage for this morning also remains a vivid example of how the church of Christ grew from street-walking preachers to a body focused on congregational care. And it doesn't just embody Ephesians 4, but also 1 Corinthians 12. Look at this, which says this, uh, starting in verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. So that, verse 25, here we go. There may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 1 Corinthians 12 is a consideration. Also in Romans, it's written as an exhortation. Look at what Paul says to the church in Rome, starting in Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. It says, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, verse 12, persevering in tribulation. Oh, and by the way, devoted to prayer. Lastly, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints, the believers, and practicing hospitality. How are we contributing to the needs of those around us? How are we participating in the life of the body of Christ? Is that even possible while you're sitting in a service? I assure you it's not. How are we also devoted to prayer? Uh, We unpacked prayer last week. Mike alluded to this earlier this morning. uh, In a service that was uh, much different than than kind of a normal order of worship here at Fellowship Bible Church. I had a few friends uh, miss service last week and they asked me what, what happened. And, and I said, well, we, we talked about prayer, and then I realized how, just how different the service was when I tried to describe it to him, and I realized that was awesome. 
uh, what, what, what we did last week, what the worship team chose to do to, to start off the new year, start off this new focus and resume our sermon series just totally on prayer, to, to pray for the people that, that need it. So beneficial to do that and, and we can all be weary not to forget prayer. It is so important in all this. Acts 6 is an encouraging piece of, of scripture for us as well because I think we can do a pretty good job recognizing an unmet need, recognizing areas for improvement or things to work on in the local church uh, without realizing why the obstacle actually exists and how it also is an opportunity for faith. Because yeah, feeding unfed widows is so important. Even sharing this auditorium space with a few different ministries here at FBC is important. Meeting those needs as they pop up are important, but there is a bookend of unity and focus in this passage because of who God is and what he is up to. And what I'm telling you is there's an ultimate priority that ought to be front and center for God's church. And this ultimate priority is what separates what we're doing right now from a country club or a Christian TED Talk. Jesus himself, in the book of Matthew, first spoke of his church. And he did not say, I will build my church and you better believe the widows will be fed. Jesus did not say, I will build my church and it will satisfy the unmet needs of everybody, every time. Jesus didn't say, I will build my church so that thousands of years from now, the American pulpit can be a place of emotional rejuvenation and self-help theology. No. What Jesus said was, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what he said. Why? Because that is what we are up against. And that promise that Jesus gave when he talked about his church means what? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, <laughs> you belong to something to which hell loses. That is worth being excited about. That is worth participating in. It has always been the triumph of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he took on sin and punishment, that you could have life, oh, and by the way, have it abundantly. It's been true for Jews and Greeks alike, and today it's true for me and you. And if you've yet to believe that, folks, I'd encourage you to get on it because that's what this whole Bible is about. 66 books all pointing to the need for one man, Jesus, God's son. We need him. It is useless trying to navigate life by any other truth. This time, every year, when the calendar turns, the whole universe decides to have a new resolution, a new hope, a new dream, a new way of life. And if it's anything other then God's truth, it will come up empty, you will be left wanting, and the anxiety will continue to reign, and so will division. That division, that brokenness, we can also appreciate this morning that, that 
seeing brokenness within the local church is a tale as old as time. It happened then. But coming face to face with the fact that Jesus is what you need is what makes that time worthwhile. We're born sinners in need of saving. And that salvation came in the name of Jesus. He settled our eternity on the cross so long as we believe he did. That's it. That's what the Bible says. We believe it. And once you know where you're going, (laughs) once you belong to the body of Jesus Christ and you have settled the state of your eternity, embracing the journey makes all the difference for that abundant life we can have in Christ. Here's three quick pieces of application uh, from Acts chapter 6 that speak to, to where we went this morning. The first one, see inevitable obstacles as incredible opportunities. See that within the local church and in your own life as well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a well-known theologian, might put it this way. Learn to thank God for the waves that crash you against the rock of ages. That perspective. If living is easy, is it faith or fruit? Because it's when circumstances arise that we have an opportunity to choose unity. And keep the main thing the main thing. What was an embarrassing mishap, a natural consequence of the vastly growing church in Acts, the obstacle, ended up raising the first deacons for service from obstacle to opportunity. Here's a second thing. Value the backbone of a committed local church. We see that with the 12 and what they accomplished here with this, with this situation. Being committed to a, a biblical church. If it ain't this one, find one. I encourage you to. With multiple leaders being obedient, allowing and resourcing you to belong, to grow, connect, and serve. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference because too many people are wanting a a jump start or a a sudden change to happen in their spiritual life while they're sitting alone in traffic, but nobody's walking into their local church saying, how can I participate in what God is doing? Don't underestimate the difference between you being up against it in life and all of us being up against it together in Jesus' name. In this world, you will find trouble. That's a biblical guarantee. But take heart, our Jesus has overcome the world. Here's the last thing. Spread the word of God. We should all strive for an Acts chapter 6 verse 7 in our lives. Why? May the word of God spread farther than our own. May others around us come to know him. And may even the most stubborn among us begin to see the fruit of our labor. I haven't had time this morning to unpack the the priests and and what they've been up to the whole time in the biblical accounts and, and why they're being stubborn now. But to see this turning point where even priests were becoming obedient to the faith is huge. And when we think about those three things, the way the Bible lays it out in this passage for us, hopefully it's the word of God being heard. People are coming to know him. And even the most stubborn among us may begin to see the fruit of our labor. For George Washington, a little over 230 years ago, it meant everything to be prepared for war 
as it is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace. For believers in Jesus Christ, we are called simply to be prepared for battles because the war has already been won. That is a deep and boundless peace. And it is one that only Jesus Christ can offer. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this morning. Thank you for each and every person that you brought into this room, God. It's just uh, such an encouragement uh, to be a part of the body of Christ together, uh, to disregard the lie that we were meant to live this life alone. And God, I pray a few things happened this morning and will continue to happen as we leave here. I pray that your word means more to us as we leave than when we first arrived. God, I pray we would look at building bridges into the places you have already placed us, God, because the reality is all eight billion people on this planet have been called to missions, and it is to spread your love and your truth to those around them. I pray we would seize those opportunities well, that we would serve well alongside one another. And God, for anybody in this room who might be discouraged, who might be looking back at at last year with, with distaste, discouragement, if life hit hard in any way, God, I pray that they would start to see life as you define it and not as they have, and certainly not as the world has. God, I pray that your spirit would continue to move through our worship set, through our conversations afterwards, and that we would glorify you in everything we say and do. I lift all this up in Jesus' holy name. Amen.